Clinker Factor, the Cement Industry Podcast. Welcome to The Clinker Factor, a podcast from WCA, which looks at the cement industry's response to climate change around the world and other topics of interest. I'm Ian Riley, CEO of WCA, and your host on The Clinker Factor. So today we're looking at what's happening in the world of ESG finance and the potential impact this will have on the cement industry. And I'm talking to David McNeil, who is Head of Climate Risk at Sustainable Fitch. So David, welcome. Perhaps you could give us a brief introduction of uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing now and, and also what Sustainable Fitch does. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Uh, well, my background is actually in environmental economics, so I've worked in a few different fields uh, within this wider sector um, over the past 10 years. Started out working for an NGO, uh, collaborating directly with corporates and water stewardship, um, then in public policy consulting for a number of years, largely consulting to the European Commission, the UK government on macroeconomic analysis of environmental policies. Uh, a few years at S&P Truecost, again, working with corporates and investors on uh, climate and environmental footprinting, uh, both in operations and supply chains. And then more recently, two and a half years at Fitch, uh, where I've been primarily focused on physical and transition risks as these relate to credit from a climate perspective. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. I think one of, one of the areas that I hear a lot about these days is, uh, is carbon offsets. And I think that's an area that, uh, that you look at. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what's happening in the carbon offsets market. And if companies are, are thinking about using carbon offsets, what are the things that they should be considering? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an industry that's developed from a very low base in terms of the average price plate um, and volume of trade in the past two years. We have seen this being driven primarily by the volume of corporate setting net zero carbon neutrality targets in the past two years, where again, there's been a very sharp rise in those types of targets uh, within corporate reporting. And that has fed through into the voluntary carbon markets where we have seen a status quo of generally low price and often low quality uh, carbon offset credits starting to filter through into rising competition at the top of the market for high costs and generally high quality third party verified um, carbon offset credits. So we expect to see that trend continue where there will be a two-tier market develop, but we really see quite a strong push now, um, given the focus of investors on carbon offsets, given the focus of regulators increasingly uh, on standardization, on kind of establishment of best practice principles. And I think the uh, core carbon principles that have been announced by the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets, and you're similar to the pattern that we saw with the TCFD, where this was an industry-led uh, voluntary disclosure initiative that then informed regulation. I think we'll probably see a similar pattern in offset markets where your know, voluntary frameworks gradually start to inform regulation in different jurisdictions. And it's interesting to see, I think, you know, within the SEC's proposal in the US on its mandatory climate change disclosures, they made specific reference to you know, what would be acceptable in terms of references to offsets. Uh, use of renewable energy certificates, et cetera, within disclosures. So it's clearly an area that's kind of moving from voluntary disclosures and fairly light touch um, scrutiny to much more kind of regulatory input and much more of a push on standardization. And I think that will translate into higher costs going forward for these credits. So when you talk about high quality offsets, what does that mean? Yeah, so generally... What are being recognized as kind of two core principles uh, for the industry when purchasing offset credits are additionality of emissions reductions. So this is the concern that if you're purchasing an offset credit, that's financing a project that could have 
proceeded anyway in the absence of that credit. Uh, historically, a lot of carbon offset credits have financed renewable energy development, particularly in China and India, and many large emerging markets. Given the falling costs that we've seen in solar and wind uh, technologies in the past 10 years, it's arguable that a lot of those projects would have proceeded anyway in the absence of the carbon offset credit. Um, Another concern that's becoming more material to the industry is the permanence of those emissions reductions. So particularly when you're talking about forestry and land use based carbon offsets, where we see rising demand from corporates uh, for these types of offset credits, Um, The concern there is that these emissions reductions are going to be locked in long term, that there will be responsible long term management of those resources to ensure that um, any emissions that are um, emitted to the atmosphere by a corporate, say, you know, a cement producer and its operations, um, subsequent kind of forestry and land use um, actions taken to offset that are maintained long term. So those carbon emissions are locked in and are permanent. So these are becoming kind of two areas of primary scrutiny, I'd say, in terms of offset credits. And I think you know, that push for higher standards and better quality disclosures, it will lead to higher costs over time. And just uh, looking at the market at the moment, so what, what's the cost differential between what you would consider as high quality, say, permanent additional offsets and the bulk of the market? Yeah, so the bulk of the market, historically, the voluntary carbon markets, uh, credits have traded around the 5 to $6 per tonne of carb level. Uh, We do see at the top end of the markets, um, third-party verified forest carbon offsets trading around the $17 to $20 per tonne mark. So there is quite a striking kind of cost differential there already. Um, We'll also see in the course of 2022, the build-out of the UN-administered carbon credits trading system. So this came from the agreement that we had at COP26 in November around a Paris-aligned carbon offset market. Uh, both for countries to deliver on their nationally determined contributions, but also for corporates to trade in um, buying and selling of offsets. So again, you know, that um, standardization, um, that regulatory intervention is likely to lead to higher costs over time, uh, because generally we do see a pattern where the higher the verification requirements, the higher the monitoring and reporting requirements of these projects, the higher the costs. And I think important to consider as well that as the price of carbon credits trends upwards, um, the types of mitigation projects that those can finance will also widen. Um, so we see, for example, a lot of technological solutions around carbon capture and storage uh, that are prohibitively expensive at the moment, but could potentially be financed through carbon credits in the future. And I believe the Australian regulator um, recently kind of allowed uh, the inclusion of carbon offset credits within its own um, offset trading scheme for the first time. So it is moving in a particular direction, I would say. So if we, if we look at some of the technologies that allow us to carbonate minerals, so uh, sequester CO2 in, in, in concrete or in uh, limestone, then these presumably would have a fairly easy time demonstrating permanence, but you would still need to demonstrate additionality. Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, it's clearly an area where we will see particular demand for forestry and land use based offsets, but this could be a source of finance for other kind of incremental emissions reductions in industry. Um, so particularly kind of tilting capital towards those activities. I would say in industrial commodities, such as cement, we've typically seen a weak price signal for low carbon alternatives. Um, generally low evidence of buyers being willing to pay a premium for these types of technologies. I think that could change over time, uh, particularly as carbon prices within emissions trading schemes increase, but also voluntary carbon markets increase in price and scale. 
And again, I think you know, we will start to see more of a price differential there that can fund some of these, uh, these investments in low carbon technologies. Yeah, no, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. We, we've seen from a market signal standpoint, I think we've seen more coming from government procurement policies. And of course, government buy a lot of cement around the world. So that does make a, a big difference. Um, and, and sort of mandates on things that have to be done, as opposed to uh, the, the price signals. There are very few markets that we see around the world where there's a, a premium for green concrete or green cement. Um, so can we turn to the expectations that ESG investors have from cement and other hard to abate sectors um, and ha- how that's changed uh, over the last uh, few years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's fair to say it's an area that's had significantly more scrutiny from investors in recent years, um, as they've kind of moved beyond focusing on the power sector in particular towards thinking about other sources of um, emissions growth, particularly in emerging markets when your construction is such a major driver of emissions growth. Um, regulators have typically been more lenient to hard to bait sectors, um, such as cement, such as concrete. Uh, because they recognize the large volumes of CapEx and OPEX required for those industries for low carbon transition. They recognize their importance to local and national economic growth and the importance of construction there, Um, but also the lack of viable low carbon alternatives that are available at scale and that are cost effective at present. So I think there is a bit of a kind of push pull there from investors that are scrutinizing these industries in more detail now and more depth um, and regulators that are generally providing a bit more leniency and a bit more wiggle room for these industries to transition. Um, I think, you know, we've typically seen a pattern where, you know, many investors have initially kind of looked at extending divestment policies, uh, which have applied quite widely in the energy industry to sectors such as cement and aggregates. Um, And they've found that those are inappropriate because, you know, it's just such a broad brush approach to an industry where you're going to see a lot of variation between individual corporates. Um, Increasingly, I think there's a recognition that your best-in-class approaches um, are a better fit for industries uh, such as cement, where you're looking for the the best and the worst performers in terms of emissions intensity. Where relevant, you can engage with those corporates as an investor. Um, Where you see persistently uh, performance on emissions, then you would divest as the last resort. I think there's also the concern as well around you know patterns of ownership as well and you know whether this is just going to substitute ownership from public to private markets. And we've published quite a lot of research on this issue um, over the past year. Does that re- research show that this is a substantial problem, or is it is it something that is just you know a potential issue, uh, not just in cement, but I guess in oil and gas is something that it's been affecting for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, important to put this in the context of just the rise of private markets and private equity overall in the past 10 years, and you have fairly rapid growth in the AUM is expected by 2025 under private equity strategies. So this pattern of, you know, many fossil fuel assets, and I'm thinking here particularly of thermal coal mining and power generation activities moving from public ownership into private equity ownership, where the incentives for disclosure of emissions performance and also the incentives for emission reduction are much weaker is quite an important one. And I think one that you know, increasingly um, asset owners are mindful of in their own strategies, you know, they don't want to be seen to be facilitating um, greenwashing or emissions growth by divesting and then these assets going into private ownership and um, you know, continuing to emit. We have seen that pattern, certainly with thermal coal power stations, even in Europe, where 
because the regulatory focus has tightened so substantially, a lot of public owners have divested those assets. They've continued then in private equity ownership um, emitting, uh, but with weaker disclosures, with you know less comparable disclosures um, from private equity owners, and less transparency um, around emission reduction measures. I guess one of the things that you, you were mentioning, Cole, one of the things that uh, I'm sure we've all seen in the last month or so since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine uh, was this question of, okay, how can we move away from Russian gas? And, and one of the options there is to run coal plants longer than was originally intended. Uh, is, is that something that ESG investors are, uh, is causing ESG investors to, to adjust their strategies? Or, or is that something that they, they see as just a blip? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen, certainly even in the past year before the current um, uh, situation, you know, a very sharp rise in demand for thermal coal um, in power generation. So largely driven by, you know, the even more dramatic increase that we've seen in the gas price in many regions. Um, what that has meant in the short term is much more reliance on thermal coal power, certainly in, you know, key uh, Western European markets, but also in North America, other markets where there seemed to be a kind of move towards a gradual winding down of these assets. There were coal phase out targets in place, largely for the mid to late 2020s that are now potentially going to be revisited by regulators. Um, It was interesting, the Repower EU package that was announced by the European Commission last week, um, you know, it detailed an aspiration to move away from dependence on Russian fossil fuel imports. A lot of the heavy lifting of that is being put on LNG, liquefied natural gas imports. There are concerns within the wider industry about how viable those targets are. Um, given that LNG is traded in global spot markets, it tends to go where demand and prices are greatest. So a lot of that demand is going to Asia at present. Substituting that with uh, European consumption is not going to be easy. In practice, it probably does mean wider and longer dependence on coal over the next few years. Um, the Repower EU package tries to redouble um, the focus on solar and wind deployment for 2030 to uh, counteract that to some degree. But with all these things, I mean, there's the risk of lock-in to uh, you know, thermal coal assets longer term, uh, all those emissions continuing um, over a longer time scale than previously envisaged. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a range of factors at play here. Um, but, you know, generally... It does seem that your know, structural dependence on coal will continue for a few more years as a result of this. Just turning to the to the future and, and the expectations that investors have and how that's changing, what do you see as being the outlook? What could we as a, a cement industry expect to change over the over the next few years in terms of the questions investors are asking us and, and, and the expectations that they might have? Yeah, so I mean, I think the direction of travel here is fairly clear in some of the voluntary frameworks that have been developed in the past two to three years. Um, I think you know it feels like this is a year of implementation in particular, as you know frameworks such as TCFD are increasingly enshrined in national regulation, and we'll see uh, TCFD and climate disclosure just coming to force for large corporates in the UK, for example, from this year. Um, other countries kind of setting similarly um, aligned frameworks in place for mandatory disclosures. Um, on the investor side, I mean, you see many, many more net zero asset owner and then asset manager coalitions putting in place their own net zero investing frameworks. And I think what's, um, you know, the common thread of these is that these are looking for forward looking qualitative disclosures around integration into management strategy, into overall corporate governance, um, the integration of you know, climate risks and opportunities 
into a you know sorry C-suite decision making um, consideration of products and goods and services lines and where potential risks and opportunities could arise there, but really just more of a push for some of these forward-looking qualitative disclosures around um, integration of climate risks and opportunities into decision-making, rather than what we saw in the past, which was more quantitative approaches um, based on historical data. So typically, you know, scope one and two, historical permission, emissions performance, um, moving towards kind of more qualitative metrics of um, you know, forward-looking integration into targets and detail, particularly on forward-looking CapEx and OpEx spending plans. I think, you know, this is something where investors are increasingly pushing for that type of information. So we've, we've talked about climate action in the context of trying to reduce emissions and, and the associated reporting and so forth. I suppose that in, in addition to that, there's more talk about resilience. Is, is that something that's starting to enter the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of infrastructure in particular, it's something that you know, policymakers are starting to consider. I think it's clearly an area where we see a role for the insurance industry, um, given the, the breadth of data that they hold around you know, um, exposure of specific assets, um, risk mitigation activities versus you know, risk transfer in that industry. But I think you know, climate change adaptation clearly is going to be a major theme of COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh November this year, uh, particularly finance for adaptation activities, which is a much more challenging proposition than for mitigation. Uh, if you think about you know, investment in electric vehicles or in solar or wind uh, deployment, clearly there's a return on investment there, whereas for adaptation resilience measures, you're talking about avoided costs. And that's a much more complex proposition, I'd say, for private sector to finance. So clearly there is a role there for the public sector, for governments to play and blended finance increasingly, I think, will play a role there. But I think you're clearly a key role for the construction cement sector in particular, given that um, you know they are a pivotal part of the, the infrastructure value chain. And I think you know, there will be clearly many more tools available uh, to the industry to look at long-term resilience to climate change. Um, I think you know, technology solutions such as um, building information modeling can kind of look at this in more detail. But we'll also have more sophisticated modeling of physical climate risk exposures. And again, this can be taken into account in uh, infrastructure planning and resilience planning there. And it's more of a conversation really that kind of needs to bring together national and local municipal governments together with the construction industry to kind of really look at, you know, where these costs are likely to fall, where the incentives are for making these kind of resiliency investments. But we do expect to see a very strong push on this over the next two, three years, particularly in the run-up to COP27. Yes, well, you've given us a lot to think about there, David. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Likewise. David McNeil, thank you very much. Thank you.